Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm based in Harley Street in London in the United Kingdom. And I'm delighted to be joined now by uh, Carlos Frenkel, who teaches philosophy and religion at McGill University in Montreal. He's the author of uh, books including Philosophical Religions from Plato to Spinoza, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The London Review of Books, and the Times Literary Supplement, amongst other publications. I'm talking to Carlos now because he's just published a new book entitled Teaching Plato in Palestine, Philosophy in a Divided World. And this book is published by Princeton uh, University Press. Um, So let me start, Carlos, by asking you what was your thinking in terms of the general thesis behind this book. In the introduction, you talk about the, the, the book introducing the notion or based on the notion of a culture of debate and you wanted to transform disagreement into a culture of debate and you talked about a joint search for truth and you seem to spend your time in the book visiting communities who often have very very firm beliefs and seem to be mired in conflict uh, with other groups so tell us a bit about the thinking behind the book and, and the, the practical application of your ideas and why you went to meet practically people who had very firm ideas and often were embedded in conflict? Yeah, right. So that's a very good question. And I think the ideas for this book already started taking shape in early 2000 when I was actually finishing up my PhD dissertation, which was on medieval Arabic and Hebrew philosophical texts. And um, at the time, I really felt the need to brush up on my Arabic. And so uh, I went for three months to Cairo. And uh, there I studied with a private teacher, but I also organized a kind of informal um, language exchange with Egyptian students on the side. So we would get together and we would speak some English because they were keen to practice their English and then we would speak some Arabic. So that was an opportunity for me to uh, practice my Arabic. And over time we became friends. And the better we got to know each other, the more we also became concerned about our very different, our strikingly different ways of life. So they wanted to convert me to Islam to uh, save my soul, so to speak, from eternally burning in hell. And I wanted to uh, convert them to the secular world that I grew up with because I didn't want them to waste their real life for what I think is the illusion of an afterlife. You know, so they would argue things like uh, if you become a Muslim, you know, it's really a three-in-one deal because Islam also recognizes in a certain way the truth of Judaism and Christianity. And I would reply, well, but I don't believe in God at all. And in one of these discussions, the question came up whether there is a proof of God's existence. And that question at the time really took me by surprise because in the social and academic circles I normally move in, it's not the kind of question I get very often, right, over beer in a bar in Manhattan or, or Montreal or Berlin or so. Uh, you know, people usually don't ask me if there's a proof of God's existence. And so um, I said, I think there's no such proof. They, of course, came up with the proof. Uh, I pointed out a flaw in their reasoning. Uh, they came up with an improved version, and the discussion ended inconclusively. Now, I didn't convert to Islam at the time, and they didn't become atheists, but I did learn something very important from these discussions, namely that I hadn't really thought through properly some of the most basic convictions that I live by, from my atheism to my ideas of you know what the good life consists in. And so this was really kind of like a, like a, like a wake-up call. And so here I found myself you know discussing philosophical questions with people in the street, people who didn't have... Uh, any formal background in philosophy who were not trained as philosophers, and I was really greatly enjoying these conversations. And so one of the big questions uh, I grapple with in this book is, can we take out philosophy 
uh, out of the you know traditional academic setting, out of the traditional classroom, and somehow make it relevant to real life concerns. But now to uh, say something about this idea of a culture of debate that you mentioned. Um, so uh, I realized that actually having discussions across culture and religious divisions, as I was having there in Cairo, can be very productive precisely because it, it confronts us with our prejudices that we often are not aware of. Right? So I was really forced to argue for views that I normally am not forced to argue for. And so the other big question that I grapple with in this book is basically, can we use philosophy to ground what I call a culture of debate, which is basically an intellectual space where we can discuss things that we deeply care about but also deeply disagree on across across uh, cultural and uh, religious divides, as I was doing uh, with these Egyptian students in Cairo. So I think this is really the starting point for this for this book. Um, and um, and so, you know, what I try to do in the book is um, show by example that we can take philosophy out of the classroom and also show that um, philosophy can be useful to to ground this uh, culture of debate where we have these discussions across across these divides. Well, the book is fascinating and, and, a, and a gripping read, and you cover many philosophical issues, like uh, having a strong commitment to belief, the question of does God exist, um, uh, is piety worth it, can violence be justified, what is social justice, and you do that in various philosophical workshops all across the world. Uh, I just want to pick up on that metaphysical proof of whether God exists or not. You touch on it uh, in a small amount in the book. You don't go into it in a great deal of detail because obviously you cover a lot of other things. But let's just talk a little bit about that. As I understand it, and I'm sure you're going to correct me, that proof is the Avicenna proof about infinite regress and first cause, about the idea that when you try to figure out why something happens or what causes stuff, you go back to a cause before, and then you say, well, why, why does that cause exist? exist, you go back to a cause before, and one of the arguments or the metaphysical proof that God exists is that God represents first cause. In other words, even physicists have problems when they go back to the Big Bang. If you ask them the question, if the Big Bang is the first event that starts the universe off, what caused the Big Bang? What happened before the Big Bang? So um, scientists run into trouble when they go back into this infinite regress of trying to sort out what happened right at the beginning. What was the first cause of everything? And the best way of thinking about that first cause is that that is God. Is that a fair summary of the argument? Yeah, I think, I think that's basically correct. So, so uh, they, they basically came up with a version of what the philosophers sometimes call the metaphysical proof of God, which, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, um, is often attributed to the medieval Islamic philosopher Avicenna, who lived in the 10th century. And, um, and it's a very elegant proof and a fairly simple proof. Um, and I think you summarize it really quite well. Um, it, um, it's called the metaphysical proof because it, um, it hinges on certain um, notions of existence, right? It connects um, contingent existence and necessary existence, and the basic argument is that uh, things that exist contingently, so that depend on a cause for the existence, um, they um, are not necessary existence, but that you cannot pursue this uh, chain of causes and effects to infinity, so an infinite regress is not possible, so you have to somehow get to a cause that does not depend on other causes, on prior causes, that is not contingent, but that is necessary. So if you accept if you accept this basic distinction between contingent existence and necessary existence, and if you accept the premise that an infinite regress is not possible, then you basically uh, have to concede that the chain of causes and effects must be initiated by something that exists necessarily, that exists in virtue of itself that does not depend on causes outside itself, so that's not contingent. 
so yeah, so I think that's a fair summary of that proof. But although um, you don't go into it in great in great detail, you then come up with an with a with an argument against that, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So you know, so so so, so one way of questioning it is uh, you know to say, well, um, you know, I don't accept the premise that an infinite regress is not possible. Maybe our universe just consists in an infinite chain of causes and effects, and there is no, you know, starting point. There is no necessary cause that somehow is uh, responsible for the whole thing. Uh, so so that's one way of uh, of uh, uh, you know. Um, Posing an objection to that to that proof, so rejecting one of the basic premises on which it is based, uh, they might then reply that um, actually even if you have an infinite series of contingent causes, you still need uh, a necessary cause that is somehow responsible for bringing that infinite series of uh, contingent causes and effects into existence. So they might have a reply to that objection that I mentioned, and so you know, so you can really get into a a fairly elaborate uh, discussion here, and um, uh, you know, so um, yeah, so I don't think there is a conclusive uh, answer to uh, who uh, who is right on this and who is wrong. Okay. Um, now, the other key concept you introduce in the book is the notion of fallibilism, which you seem to think is very important and might be very helpful in resolving some of the big conflicts that exist in the world. In the world, tell us what you mean by fallibilism. Right, so fallibilism is basically um, conceding that um, even though you know we have belief on you know the big issues such as God's existence or the origin of the universe or what a good life consists in or what good politics consists in or how politics should relate to religion and so forth, we have beliefs on these uh, on these issues, and often we have strong convictions on these issues. But that doesn't entail that we actually correct on these issues and conceding that we may be wrong, even though we have. You know, strong beliefs, strong convictions. That's basically what I mean by by fallibilism. So, if one makes that into a principal position, where one always says, uh, you know, even though I have some evidence supporting my views, but I don't have conclusive evidence supporting my views, and I remain open to revising them at any point, um, then I think you then 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 you're basically a fallibilist. Then you're someone who can be can be described as uh, as a fallibilist. So it's basically the view that you. Uh, your convictions might turn out to be wrong at some point, that they're always in some sense, uh, uh, you know, preliminary. So another way of thinking and about think, that is it, it means you're open-minded. Um, yeah, that's correct. So basically um, uh, what I want to avoid in this project is, um, I guess, um, both the uh, skiller of uh, relativism and skepticism and the charybdis of a kind of Stalinist, uh, you know, oppressive, suffocating concept of absolute truth that we impose on everyone. So, so fallibilism in some sense tries to steer a middle way. Uh, you know, obviously, if you are a relativist who says everyone has his or, or her own truth, then a, a culture of debate where we try to you know, figure it out together uh, becomes useless because, you know, there is no truth that we can uh, in the end agree on that we can strive to grasp. Uh, if you are a skeptic, uh, the same applies, right? So, uh, you know, you will in principle say that the truth is inaccessible to us. Maybe there is an objective truth out there, but human reason is simply in, unable, doesn't have the power to grasp it. And so, uh, you know, so, so these two approaches would make a culture of debate, this idea of a joint search for the truth, basically uh, uh, useless from the outset. So I need something stronger than that, but I also, but I also don't want to impose you know, some kind of absolute truth that I think uh, everyone has to somehow to uh, submit to. 
Um, and so uh, fallibilism, I think, gives me an elegant way out. And I think, you know, we have good reasons to be fallibilists because, um, you know, um, on most questions, I think there is no conclusive, on most big questions, there is no conclusive evidence that, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, clearly favors one answer over over others. So, um, you know, so I think fallibilism is, is not only um, it's not only a useful position, but it's, I think, also a well-supported position. But the problem is that many skeptics of the philosophical approach that you argue in the book would say the fallibilism view, which is you kind of saying, well, I might be wrong, doesn't seem uh, passionate or strident. It doesn't seem persuasive. It seems a little bit uh, docile. Um, it seems resigned. It's, it's, it, it, you're not coming up fighting for your, for your side in, in an argument. If you adopt the fallibilist position, it just feels that way. Right, but um, that's not what I mean. So, so I also, um, you know, advocate in the book a position that I call critical ethnocentrism. So, um, uh, you know, and that's in part critical of, let's say, um, advocates of multiculturalism who think that you know everyone should just uh, live and think according to their own way and uh, follow their own tradition. Um, so I do think that we should uh, fight for our convictions, and I'm always willing to defend mine. And I think. Um, you know, in the book, I, I, I try not to come across as, uh, you know, an easy pushover. <laughs> so I try to, you know, I try to come up with objections. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I didn't hide from my Egyptian friends that I was an atheist. Uh, and, um, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't somehow just leave them um, in their beliefs, but I tried to convince them as they tried to convince me. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, standing up for one's convictions, but I don't think that... Um, uh, one will be interested in engaging in a debate if one takes one's convictions for the absolute and definitive and unquestionable truth, right? So, so I think another condition for a culture of debate to, to, to be able to take off is, is really that one, that one has at least some intellectual humility and says, you know, I may be wrong. I do believe that I'm right and I'm happy to defend my views uh, and I'm passionate about my views and I didn't try to convince others that I am right. But nonetheless, uh, it may turn out that in the end, um, you know, there are arguments that show that I am wrong. Um, so um, so I, I don't really see these two things as, as being incompatible, to be passionate about one's views and to concede that these views might turn out to be wrong. Okay. I mean, another bit of the book you mentioned, I think it may come from Socrates, the notion of techniques of debate and virtues of debate. And it seemed to me that you had to kind of lay the groundwork a bit with many of the students you encountered in your workshops over what these techniques of debate are and the virtues of debate. Could you say something about that? Sure, sure. So, so I think it's it's very important that I that I that I mention at least briefly what I actually mean by philosophy when 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 I talk about philosophy in this book, and uh, and so what I don't mean by philosophy is some kind of grand philosophical theory such as Marxism or existentialism or something else. Uh, so what I mean is something really much more uh, simple, much more deflated. Um, as you said, uh, on the one hand, techniques of debate, so you know, logical and semantic tools that we that we can use to simply clarify what we mean when we talk with others, to uh, make an argument, to respond to an argument, you know, so basically uh, uh, what one could call the toolkit of the philosopher. Um, and uh, secondly, um, as you also mentioned, uh, virtues of debate, and here I think the most important virtue is a certain attitude um, where um, we love the truth more than we love uh, winning an argument. So when I talk about culture of debate, what I, what I, what I, what I don't mean is you know the kind of uh, debates that you have in high schools where the 
goal is to somehow uh, prevail over the other, no matter what. But what I mean is really, um, you know, a serious attempt to find out the truth where uh, winning the argument is not your primary, your primary aim. Um, and so I think these two things, which I think are fairly simple, um, so these techniques of debate and these, uh, you know, virtues of debate, I think they they would be sufficient for having a productive, for having productive discussions, for making the differences that we have, for making the disagreements on, you know, many fundamental moral, religious, and philosophical questions that we have productive, for make to make them intellectually useful. Now, now, what's really interesting about what you've just said there is that one of the problems, it seems to me, although it's a very interesting project, yours of bringing philosophy out of the, the academic common room and out into the world, and, and the world that's red in tooth and claw in terms of conflict and, and, and um, uh, wars, for example, is you said the point of the seeking after truth is not just to prevail over the other side, but is to pursue the truth no matter what. But that when we get, come out of the academic common room, when we find ourselves in the real world, as it were, we discover that the point of the world, as I think Karl Marx would have argued, is precisely to prevail over the other side. In other words, it's the power dynamic that seems most important between nations, uh, between people, between organizations, in politics, and so on and so forth, rather than the pursuit of truth. Right, right. So, um, you know, and, and I, I am not someone who has... Um, you know, um, these very inflated expectations of what philosophy can do. Um, you know, my wife sometimes jokingly says that I should take down ISIS and then I would get the Nobel Prize. Um, so I don't think, you know, philosophy can take down ISIS. Um, I think you have, to, you have to choose the right means for the purpose that you are pursuing. And sometimes you need fighter jets to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, 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 to achieve something. And sometimes you need philosophical arguments to achieve something. Um, so, um, you know, if you are fighting an occupation or so, um, you know, philosophical arguments might not be enough. But I think uh, philosophical arguments might help you think through some of the basic moral and political questions that underlie certain conflicts, right? So, uh, you know, so, so, so that's why I think that um, uh, uh, doing philosophy might not be a sufficient, uh, a sufficient uh, condition for, um, you know, for, 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 for achieving... The results that, that one desires, but it might be one of the conditions that may help to uh, get to the goal. So in these workshops where you traveled across the world and you encountered people who had very firmly held beliefs, um, I'm going to ask you a very dangerous and provocative question. Did anyone change their minds? <laughs> and uh, did you change your mind? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very good question. Um, so my, my expectation is actually not so much that people will change their minds. And I don't think that I changed my mind on any of the fundamental issues. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, uh, I had these, uh, you know, extended discussions with Egyptian students about, you know, many fundamental questions, um, but I did not convert to Islam and they did not become atheists. So we, in some sense, uh, remained uh, with our initial positions. Um, what I do think that... Um, yeah, but, but uh, you know, there are, of course, exceptions. So there are conversion experiences, right? So sometimes someone indeed uh, moves over from atheism to uh, becoming a religious, uh, to becoming a believer, and sometimes uh, people move over uh, to the other side. Um, but um, I think um, what you can expect to come out of this debate is, uh, or let's say a more reasonable expectation is to... Uh, for people to revise their views, to uh, to make their views, their views more sophisticated to, uh, you know, find better arguments to support their views, to uh, 
to refine their views. Basically, I think I think I think this is a, a, a more realistic expectation, and um, you know, and so um, you know, people might remain with the initial positions that they started out with, but um, they might rethink these positions, and they might be able to better defend them, to give better arguments for them, and um, they might also become available. Um, they might become aware of the fact. That these positions are not definitive, and um, you know that there are counter arguments to them, so they might move to fallibilism from being completely convinced of the truth of their of their views. Well, it's fascinating talking to you, but we're running out of time a little bit. But I want to put a couple of final points to you, or final questions about your brilliant book. Sure. Um, one of the things that comes through with the book is the sociable nature of philosophy. A lot of people outside of philosophy might consider it a rather dry, abstruse, remote, aloof, academic subject. Um, and yet your mm-hmm. conveyance of philosophy is it's incredibly sociable. You engage with people. They engage back with you. You argue with each other. But there's a sense in which it's, it's a very sociable subject. Uh, it's a very argumentative subject, but sociable. And, and so I want to get your views on that. But also there is a sense in which it's also very threatening because you, you can trap people in a contradiction. You can expose people to a very threatening idea that actually there's an implicit contradiction often in their belief systems. And as a result of people feeling psychologically threatened by that, they will want to shut philosophy out. They'll want to shut logic out or thinking very clearly. So any views about that, that tension between the sociability and the threat that comes with clear thinking? Right, right. I mean, so, so, so to respond to the first part of your question, so, so, you know, so after I had this experience in Cairo that I mentioned, which goes back all the way to early 2000, I then later organized these uh, philosophy workshops in different uh, hotspots around the world. So um, you mentioned a Palestinian university where I did a workshop in 2006, then I did one at a state Islamic university in Indonesia, um, I did one with a group of lapsed Hasidic Jews in New York City, um, I did another workshop with... Uh, teenagers in Brazilian high schools in mostly uh, poor neighborhoods in Brazil. Um, and I did a fifth one, a last one, with um, a Mohawk community, so a First Nations or Native American community on the border between Canada and the U.S. And, and all these places are places fraught with a conflict, conflict of very different types, obviously. Um, you know, uh, so Israel and Palestine, of course, Islam and the West, but also something like religious orthodoxy and modernity in the case of Hasidic Jews in New York City, um, or social and racial divisions in Brazil, and obviously the scars of colonialism in the case of this uh, Native American community. Um, So uh, and these conflicts, I think, they give rise to fundamental questions that people in these places are anyway already grappling with, right? So does God exist? Is piety worth it? Is violence justified? Obviously an important question in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. uh, you know, uh, uh, what is social justice and how can we get there, uh, who should rule, what does political self-determination require, which is a key question in these First Nations communities. And so what I basically claim here is that one can embed philosophy, that one can de- embed the tools of philosophy in these discussions that are already going on on the ground. So I think these are philosophically very rich questions that arise from these real-life con- situations and um, you know people are already grappling with these questions they're already having these discussions and I think one can improve on these discussions that people are having by embedding philosophical tools into them um, you know if you take the example of Indonesia for example uh, so uh, I went uh, to Indonesia actually together with my wife who is a public health physician and so I started the chapter in Indonesia with this question you know what is more important 
teach in Indonesia philosophy or public health. And uh, I don't argue that teaching philosophy is more important than teaching public health, but I do argue that teaching philosophy is important, especially in a country like Indonesia that is really you know, uh, grappling with some very fundamental questions with this transition from a dictatorship to a democracy, questions such as is Islam compatible with a democracy, is Islam compatible with religious pluralism, because there are significant religious minorities in Indonesia, Christians, but also Buddhists and Hindus. Um, is uh, Islam compatible with modernization, which has been pushed in Indonesia over the last couple of decades uh, and so forth, right? So these are all, you know, a difficult and challenging questions that Indonesians are dealing with and uh, where I think the tools of philosophy can be helpful to think them through. So, so in that sense, I really think that philosophy can be can be useful, can be embedded into the kinds of questions and discussions that people already have. Um, now, to, to address the second part um, of your questions, whether philosophy can actually, in some sense, um, you know, be disconcerting and uh, make people insecure and try to shut out philosophy because they are being confronted with the contradictions and inconsistencies, um, I think that's possible. And um, again, uh, you know, um, um, the probably most prominent example of a philosopher to whom uh, that uh, happened is, is Socrates, right? So, you know, he went, goes around in, in Athens and asks people all these, uh, you know, challenging, provocative questions uh, which confront them with their ignorance, right? So he basically always leaves them with his impression that, uh, 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 you know, that what they pretended and what they claimed to know, they don't really know. Uh, and, uh, you know, everyone knows uh, how this ended for uh, Socrates. Everyone knows what the fate of Socrates was. So, um, you know, so, 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 so philosophy can be unpleasant and, uh, you know, uncomfortable in this sense. Uh, you know, Socrates is described as a gadfly, right? So that's not a very, uh, you know, pleasant association, <laughs> uh, the gadfly. Um, but I think um, that in our time, in some sense, I would say, you know, nobody can really escape from being exposed to lifestyles and belief systems that are very alien from one's own, that are very different from one's own, right? So globalization and immigration and um, uh, a global economy and travel and media and so forth, they constantly confront us with people who uh, live uh, in a way that is different from ours, who believe things that are different from ours. So I think that in some sense this kind of questioning that, that Socrates tried to induce through his uh, method of examination already exists in our time um, as a natural byproduct of uh, the kind of global society that we, that we live in and where we constantly are interacting across all kinds of cultural, religious, linguistic, political, and so forth boundaries, right? So, so, so I think, you know, the questions are already there and what I'm trying to do is uh, transform them into something that then becomes really, uh, you know, an interesting, productive, and uh, useful discussion. Now, um, I don't think that disagreements and differences in themselves can generate an interesting discussion. I do think that these techniques and virtues that we talked about earlier should ideally be, um, um, they should be made part of social discourse by uh, as it were, implementing them or integrating them into the high school curriculum so that people from early on, from, you know, the late teenage, teenage years on, uh, get used to participating in these kinds of discussions. I think if that's the case, I think people will, you know, develop a taste for it, they will have the tools for doing it, and um, they will, uh, you know, see the benefits of doing it. So, um, so, so I think, you know, it requires a certain also political effort to, uh, to make to make these differences and disagreements that we're dealing with in day-to-day day, day -to -day life um, um, productive. 
Carlos Frankel, thank you very much indeed. The book is entitled Teaching Plato in Palestine, Philosophy in a Divided World, and it's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Carlos, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, Raj, thank you so much for having me and for this interesting discussion.